Welcome back to this week's episode of The Emily Show, and I am bringing you a special conversation with Mandy Matney. You may know her as host of the Murder on Murders podcast, which is now the True Sunlight podcast and Cup of Justice. I'm sure that you've been following along with her work. When she started covering the Murdoch case, she was a local reporter in South Carolina. And in this conversation, we talk a lot about the state of journalism today, what that was like, the tremendous pressure truly for clicks and views that reporters are under, and what it's like to follow a case well before it becomes national headlines and everything that has happened since. I know you're not going to want to miss this one. I can't wait to hear what you think of it. So let's get into today's Emily Show. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm Emily D. Baker, the internet's go-to legal analyst and big fan of the cursey words. I've been a licensed attorney for over 17 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I break down the legal side of pop culture and entertainment stories we can't stop talking about. We should just get into it. Let's go. Before we get all the way into our conversation today, and so I can bring it to you uninterrupted, I want to thank our sponsor, Honey Love. Summer is absolutely the worst time to suffer with an uncomfortable bra. You know that I'm right. It is just, it's too hot for all of that nonsense. But Honey Love has revolutionized the bra game. Honey Love isn't made from heavy material that just traps the heat in or from uncomfortable underwire but you are still getting incredible lift and support with Honey Love's fabric that is so soft, it's like a second skin. You will absolutely feel the difference and you won't be pulling at your bra. It really depends on what you are looking for, but they have the more relaxed V-bra, they have an incredible crossover bra, and Honey Love has you covered from the gym to special events or just sitting at your desk streaming all day long. If you are ready to treat yourself for some new bras, and it is probably time. Use our code and treat yourself to the best shapewear on the market. Plus, you'll save 20% off. That's honeylove.com slash lawnard. Use our exclusive link for 20% off at honeylove.com slash lawnard. Cinch, snatch, and lifted. You will look hot without feeling hot. Let's get back to today's episode. Welcome back. Today, I am joined with a special guest, Mandy Matney. You will know her from all of her incredible coverage of the Murdoch case and for shining a light on, well, recently, internet trolls. And we're going to talk a little bit about that too. But you know her from the Cup of Justice podcast, from the Murdoch Murders podcast that is now the True Sunlight podcast, which is going to be shining a light on many more cases. So Mandy Matney, welcome to The Emily Show. I'm so glad to have you here. That was an excellent introduction, and it's okay. I uh, I, for I forgot the name of Cup of Justice yesterday during an interview, so it's there. You have been a journalist for how long now? For our audience that doesn't know you, which is probably three people. Over over ten years. Um, I graduated from University of Kansas Journalism School in twenty. 12. So, and I've had jobs in journalism ever since and worked on my college newspaper. So it's been a long time. It's been a long time. Did you know, like as a kid that you wanted to go into journalism, when did you decide that that was, that you wanted to kind of dig in and go that route? 
I started working for my high school newspaper, the Northwest Passage, um, and just re my senior year of high school, and I just really loved it. Um, I loved like going down the, I, I loved walking through the high school and like people would be reading my articles and asking me like questions about it. And I just really loved it. But as far as investigative journalism, I was always terrified of it and did pretty much everything to avoid it. <laughs> and I <laughs> wanted to do it, but I was also terrified by it. Um, so I did a lot, like I had a dating column when I was in uh, college called Text in the City. And <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> and I did things like that that were a little uh, less dark <laughs> with journalism. And I was the, the editor of a, my first job was the editor of a tiny newspaper in Missouri called the Waynesville Daily Guide that was a five-day news, five-day daily um, print. And I was the editor of it when I was 22. And I had no idea what I was doing. And it was just constantly wow. making huge mistakes. <laughs> and it was just, a 22-year-old should never be in charge of a newspaper. And, um, but I learned a lot. And here I am now in South Carolina doing my own thing. So it's been a long, long time coming. And and not really what you anticipated, really with a, such a history in print journalism, I imagine that you didn't see yourself as ending up here. And I know you've shared that story throughout uh, your podcasts, but going from print into audio, into audio video, it's an entirely different game than getting to write something and edit it and think about it and maybe put it down for a minute, walk away and come back, which is very different than a weekly podcast. How is that transition for you? It's extremely different. Um, and I feel like we relate for, I'm sure when you were in law school, you weren't considering this path. <laughs> I'm sure they weren't Never. like the <laughs> legal no, commentary on popular... Uh, and having a podcast and things like podcasts didn't exist when I was in college, or if they did, I hadn't really heard of them until the serial podcast came out in, I believe it was 2014, 2015. And that just kind of changed the game for me. That made me really want to dig into true crime stories that made me, because the storytelling in that podcast, and I know that it had, um, some problematic parts as far as how they portrayed Adnan. Um, but the way that she walked people through her process of reporting instead of everything I knew before that was just gathering up this information. And on a, on a story like that, that would have been called a project in, in the news, <laughs> in the newspaper world. And it would, have and you don't walk the people through the process. You just say like, here's the findings and here's, and I just love how storytelling has changed so much and how it's just um, you could do so many different things. And podcasting, too, for me, I always just didn't really feel like I fit in print journalism. I always wanted to kind I my thing has always been like, I have opinions and it's hard to hide them. Why am I hiding them from my audience? Why don't I just be transparent about my opinions and the audience can decide and, and also give the facts and the audience can decide and at least know where I'm coming from versus I just didn't like in the newspaper world how constantly it's like 
just pretend like you have no opinions in, in this and weigh both sides and talk to both sides. And I feel like that is really losing a lot of people in journalism. I want my audience to trust me and um, I like to be ex as open and as transparent as possible and they can decide um, if my opinions affected my reporting versus just pretending like I have no opinions in any of this you know, or connections in any of this and um, giving the information. But I, I also love that we're in a time where you can just try different things and running my own company and me media company and business now. Um, I always, in the newspaper world, I didn't feel like I fit in and I always wanted to push the limits and I was constantly getting in trouble <laughs> <laughs> or you're telling me you were being pesky at work. Was. And they were like, I, oh. I, I, I was all, they were always just like, Mandy, calm down. And I was like, why? I've heard Emily calm down quite a lot. Just a lot of old men in suits told me to calm down during my career. And like, I, I always wanted to like save journalism and always wanted it, had this in me to, I want to see a future in this. So I was very passionate about the newspapers that I worked for and getting the, our communities interested in their newspapers again and behind their newspapers again. And I would come up with ideas all the time. And just a lot of times they would just fall flat and just like, no, we don't do that here. And so after years of doing that for a very long time, um, now I can just try my own thing. <laughs> if it works, it does. Um, I love experimenting with where we have a new platform that we are uh, for our premium members that we are uh, showing people showing people cases and document and they can go through documents and articles and just kind of a new way of telling stories and discussing them um, with our team, which I think is something that the traditional newspaper world just leaves out, which is people need to trust their the journalists that are telling the story and people need to have a relationship of some sort um, and feel like they can know this person and get behind them and support them. I mean, newspapers need financial support at the end of the day. And what's been happening in the last 20 years is I feel like the traditional world is just kind of watering down reporters and journalists because um, that's where I was a few years ago. Just so afraid to say my opinions on Twitter or in any capacity that you, you're not really a person. You're just this, you're like a, a smush of all these things. <laughs> you're a smush blob of all these things that everybody else wants you to be. And then nobody wants to support that person. Like, I was just constantly because you're not a you're not a person. You're just a shell at that right. point, right? And right, and and it makes people people can hate um, media companies a lot better when they don't know anybody that's involved in those media companies and not trust them. And so I I've just done it different, and I've appreciated that, <laughs> and I appreciate having I mean, an audience. We're seeing that happen, but you said, you know, if it works, it does, which is, I think, maybe downplaying a little bit the success that you've created and built through the way that you tell stories. Um, I believe when Cup of Justice, your second podcast launched, it launched like at number one across iTunes or Apple Podcasts, which I will always call I iTunes. <laughs> <I'm old. laughs> so it launched at number one. 
that's a huge deal. Like it's it not to steal your your tagline, but that is a really big deal. Your podcast has had a tremendous amount of reach and success and respect. And I think it's because you're transparent and it's funny to to feel because I like to go both ways on a case. And there are some cases I cover when I'm like, I'm not really rooting for an outcome one way or the other. I want to see it play out in real time because I'm not doing it in an investigative way. I'm doing it in an explainer way. And there's cases I'm like, I'm just interested to see where this goes. Let's all follow along together. I don't know what's going to happen at the end. Maybe the kid sees dead people. I don't know. Let's all find out what happens at the end of this story and what this judge does. But there's other cases where I'm like, I am mad about this. This is why I'm mad about this. I'm going to tell you when these arguments are good or bad, but just so you know, I'm coming into this heated about this particular case and I can let my audience decide between the two. And it's funny because particularly when covering Murdoch, I got so many comments. It was like, oh my God, Emily's so biased towards thee and then insert prosecution or defense interchangeably. I'm like, I'm really just rooting. The person I am biased for the most in this case is Judge Newman and that incredible chair. Like I am rooting to see good lawyers do great work. And at the end of the day, I want to be able to understand the result that the jury comes to. And I think people understand that people innately have their own biases and their own experiences. And, you know, I might be harder on the prosecution. I tell people that I'm more critical. That's the job I did. So I can be more critical that way than the other way. If an attorney annoys me, I'm going to tell you that attorney annoys me. Maybe I'm being too hard on them. They've already annoyed me. But it allows them to then my audience to then decide just like you let your audience decide like this is what i'm digging into and this is where i'm coming from and then they can choose and i think people are wise enough to choose yeah and i mean like like we talked about before with like dick and jim um there were times where i complimented them if, you, if somebody does something good you have to and sometimes i felt like i was over compliment <laughs> complimenting um because i would get so much criticism of you just hate them you can't see and it's like no i could see i I promise i can see that when they're doing good things and i mean i i'll be the first to admit that maybe i was close to too close to this entire case and that um that affected my work in a lot of ways whether that that was good or bad i was extremely passionate about it and I think that that's what got a lot of my audience interested in it to begin with. And I said in the first podcast and back in 2021, like, this is my area. This is, this is important to me. This is something that needs to change and that I have lived the last couple years of my life thinking and breathing about and worried about. And for the trial, it, I refuse to hide my bias about, I think Alex Murdoch is one of the worst people on the planet. And I think that he absolutely deserves everything that every, everything, every, all the situation that he's in right now. And I refuse to try to give both sides to that. He's just, he's a bad guy. Um, and, and you've also made that really clear. Yeah. You've made that incredibly clear. And again, I don't think there's anything wrong with making clear, like we've dug into this case and have a perspective on it. Right. And uh, and it's like, I had a lot of evidence to back up the fact that he was a bad person. It wasn't just in, I think that people see me online as 
somebody who can't see it, um, who can only see this vision of I hate Alex, I hate Alex. But there, there was a lot of times when I would sit down because I'm very hard on myself and I would sit down and really stop to think about like, okay, what, what, what is it that makes me hate this guy? And what, what is the opposite? Um, what are the other factors that I'm missing here? And I mean, but this whole concept of just being neutral and like court TV, I feel like does that a lot. Um, a lot of different old school news channels try to be neutral, but it, a lot of times it either lands as boring to a lot of people and hard to follow too. I feel like when you have a, have a commentator that is not afraid to share their opinions and their emotions and again, be transparent about where they're coming from, it's just a lot more interesting. When you started covering the Murdoch case, um, you started really pulling the thread on the Satterfield settlement and what had happened there. And it doesn't seem like you picked up a tremendous amount of support in your initial reporting. Um, what made you keep going kind of down that road of saying, I know that there's more here, even though it wasn't necessarily gaining the traction that we've now seen? Because I think it's easy to see how successful um, you've been, your podcast has been, and what a heard voice you are in the space now. But it's real easy to forget that that wasn't always the case when you first started covering this story. Yeah. Um, back in 2019, I was working for a traditional newspaper, The Island Packet. And uh, I thank God I was with Liz, who is my co-host on Cup of Justice and also co-host on True Sunlight. And she's just my all-time work wife. Um, when you... <laughs> It's hard to explain to people how we work, but we finish each other's sentences. Or if I'm up, if I'm down, um, she'll be up. If um, we just know how we, it's hard to, once I get, both of us get very frustrated trying to work with a lot of other people. <laughs> and <laughs> you guys get each other. Yeah, we get each other. And we want, we want, when we try to work with, I mean, and we're fine to work with. <laughs> Probably shouldn't say that. Like, we're both nice. I feel like the internet just uses us as these mean girls that like refuse to uh, work with anybody else, but we really do. And <laughs> we're both very nice, but we just get each other. And, Having Liz right next to me and another reporter, Teresa Moss, um, who doesn't work there anymore, but she was also very, very pesky. And the three of us were just like, there's just a lot wrong here. And just continuing to not only just have this gut feeling of like, there's a lot more here. This could be something really big. Um, and also just meeting the more and more people I met in um, from Hampton, either online or uh, some people I would meet in person because they didn't want to talk about it on the phone because it was that terrifying. Yeah. Um, they were, it wasn't just a gut feeling. Like they were telling me these things, you know, like this is how it is in Hampton and something has to be done. And we need somebody to tell the truth about this family. And from the get-go, from the first day that 
Mallory um, was missing in the boat crash, everybody just started saying, and online, it was very easy to pick up on the fact that people from Hampton were saying that this is going to get covered up and this is going to go away because this is what happens. And that's just kind of the angle. And it, it really did feel like I've been avoiding this. My I've been avoiding doing this type of investigative work my entire life. It's time to do this and it's time to do it in the right way. Which isn't easy to do because you know it's going to be an uphill battle. And I mean, this is before, for my audience, we a lot of them have seen the um, the body cam footage of, do you know who Alec Murdoch is? That's his son. Good luck. This is before any of that was even out, but you knew that that was the case. You knew that that was the case. You didn't need to see the body cam footage to know that was exactly the sentiment and the case. I think that that body cam footage particularly helps bring the rest of the nation into this is how people locally were feeling because this is what was happening. Um, what I was stunned by at the trial, and you probably weren't because you've been covering this for so long, was Alec Murdoch rolling around the hospital with his badge hanging out of his pants pocket. Um, I have a badge back in my my um, my set here from when I was a DA. It's in Lucite now. But I that badge was not sitting on the dashboard of a car. I, I You would have gotten in the amount of trouble you would have gotten in for, for that, unless you were actually needing to park your car at a crime scene for work. Um, those badges weren't for personal favors, for leverage, for, for asserting yourself in places you shouldn't be for accessing a crime scene that you're not the district attorney on that you're not investigating or involved in. And it seems that Murdaugh used that badge and power and privilege for all of those things to access the, the crime scene and to take the boat away or for his family to be allowed to take the boat away to get into the hospital access that he never should have had to talk to witnesses to a case where his son was involved. It it was so staggering to me um, that all of that happened and played out in the trial. I, I was losing my mind for days over the red lights on the car, over the badge on the dad. I repeatedly lost my mind over it, but this is what the people in Hampton knew and had been trying to tell everybody. And you started telling that story. Yeah. An extreme abuse of abuse and abuse of power, like to the extreme. Um, and the fact that he had only prosecuted like a handful of cases and barely prosecuted them. Most of them he did with his father and he got that amount of power. Um, that solicitor's badge lights on his vehicle. On his personal vehicle. It's just so preposterous to me that he's rolling around as quasi law enforcement with a badge, a gun, and lights on his car, doing whatever. And he nothing wants. has been done about that, and that drives me crazy. It's like, okay, clearly that was a big problem that we <laughs> had, and let what can we do to make sure that doesn't happen again, Duffy Stone? Um, that you gave him the badge. What are what are you doing to prevent that from happening? And. I mean, that, that was a big thing. I I believe I, start, I started hearing about Alex's bad use and um, roll, the, the phrase that a lot of people use is he would roll up into parties with his lights on. And I mean, the characterization that that paints Alex in, and in the area that just dealt with that, a person like that, that was just awful and had all this power that he could loom over others 
and flash a badge if you needed to and do whatever. Um, it's just stunning to me. And well, and flash his lights and get into access that Mallory Beach's family were kept away from. Exactly. It, it, it again, it's staggering to me. Um, as this was all like spilling out how much there was, cause it was like, and wait, there's more and wait, there's more and wait, there's more. It, it's it's absolutely wild, but his his um, bad use with the boat crash was that something you knew from sources that it was going to get covered up when you started covering that? Were you like, we need to get to the bottom of this? Because I still see people online saying, well, we don't know if Paul was really driving, and we don't know um, what was going on there. And I'm like, it seemed to me that witnesses maybe gave um, revised versions after they had some time to chat. It was very clear um, getting, when I got the DNR file in the summer of 2021, so after Paul died and they finally ended the case, and I went through stacks and stacks of reports and all the evidence that they had, it was very clear that... Um, Every kid on that boat knew exactly who the Murdoch family was and knew the power that they had. And Alex's influence, Alex's just presence in the hospital was terrifying to them and did make their statements a little shaky at the time. And they just lost their friend and there was just so much going on. I am absolutely confident that if the boat crash went to trial, um, all, all of those kids would undoubtedly say that Paul was driving. And and I think it was also just a complicated thing because they were asked, did you see Paul driving at the moment um, that you crashed? And I mean- and They had been getting down lower in the boat, a lot of them. So they weren't watching who was right, driving. Right. And a couple point. of them were in front of him. So they, you wouldn't be watching yeah. the driver. And I can't see him. I know he was driving the last time I saw someone driving. Right. And it was just, and it was also a super traumatic moment. They didn't know if Mallory was alive or dead and like a million things were going through their mind. And they also just grew up knowing who Paul Murdoch was and who his family was. And so a lot of people I feel like weren't understand. They, they took those witness statements out of context and changed them around to make it look like there was a misunderstanding of who was driving. But I don't think there ever really was. I think, um, and I believe in, I mean, and if you read about the moments before the crash, Paul was the angry one that was out of control. And Paul was the one that like, why would Connor accelerate through? And, and if you see the, I I've actually taken, uh, a boat through Archer's Creek and it is super, even during the day, it's hard to navigate through. And I don't think a lot of people get that. Um, it would be a very tricky and dangerous route to take at night, even sober, because it's incredibly dark. The tide changes a lot and it's very narrow and hard to get through. And only a person with a temper and a extreme and Paul had all these behaviors, um, drinking a lot, being out of control. He had a history of being out of control and violent when he was drinking. And it was an act of violence. What he was doing. I mean, he accelerated the boat very fast through an extremely 
dangerous situation. And I just could not picture in a million years Connor Cook doing that. And it wasn't Connor Cook's boat. And that was another thing I was hearing from kids at the time. If you were on Paul Murdoch's boat, Paul Murdoch was always driving and he made clear of that. And I've known kids that were like, I can imagine. I've known kids like that, you know, how that just goes. And so I've always believed that Paul was absolutely driving. It's interesting that this case is still um, years later in litigation, now less litigation since um, Parker's is finally, or their insurance company has finally settled the case. But I don't think we're far from done. And I don't think a lot of people knew much about the boat case when they tuned into the murder murder case. Like the national audience was like, wait, what is the rest of this going on? And I'm sure you saw that in your podcast growing so much because then once people are like, oh, there's um, a murder trial, it was one of the only trials being covered at the time um, in streaming or on television. And so everybody kind of turned their attention to it. And I'm sure then we're like, oh, now I need more information. And your podcast was um, one of the preeminent sources that people would go to catch up on the backstory and the years of litigation leading up to this um, going to trial. And as you kind of foisted into investigative journalism with the Murdaws and now into running your own media company, how do you see that going forward? And how how fulfilling has that been being able to take a minute and look at some other stories? It's flattering. It's exciting. It's um, motivating. Like I feel motivated again to expose the bad guys and go after. And I get a lot of messages from younger journalists all the time that say like, I want to do what you did in in that case. And um, that's a really, really great thing because I feel like a lot of a lot of cases across the country are just completely neglected and left in the dark. And they're left in the dark a lot of times because media companies do not believe that they can commit the manpower to have a reporter fully investigate a story. And at the time at the packet, when the beach case was going on, it was funny because we were going through all sorts of I feel like we were down like eight reporters in our newsroom and I think we we didn't have like a lead editor. So like we were able to just kind of do things because there was so much. Like we had it. It was fine. <laughs> right. And we were like, we're going to put three, three reporters on this. So like we're going to put three journalists on the story because it's that important. And we just kind of like made those calls and just went in for it. And I, and we already got, um, and even, and a lot of people don't get this either. Um, that lawsuit was a very big deal. The beach, the the beach case lawsuit and the boat crash, those stories were seen. I remember looking on um, McClatchy, which is owned the Island Packet, and like the all the boat crash stories were beating all the Miami Miami, Miami Herald stories, all of the other Charlotte Observer, all the other big newspapers. I mean. We were seeing numbers that we really hadn't seen in our newsroom on that case. It was the biggest civil case in South Carolina at the time, even before the murders. And it was fascinating to, and so we just decided like, go all in. Don't, because the, the traditional newspaper route is just kind of like tap in and then move Move on on and do something else. But we just kept going. And we were like, we're at this time where you, 
y'all say that an audience is so important and that we're supposed to be writing for an audience. Well, look at these huge numbers that we're getting. And this is important investigative work. And my boss at the time, I remember, said uh, one time he was bored by boat crash stories. So, oh. uh, yeah. And I'm sick of that. And you guys just are just do, doing a lot of it. And it's like, well. There's a lot to talk about. Yeah. Sir. Yeah. So it's funny. And I'm also just very glad I was not at the Island Packet at the time when the murders happened. Because, like I said, the... I would have never been able to have a podcast on my own. And if I did, they would have watered it down and made it just boring. And like every other uh, podcast that doesn't get <laughs> a lot of attention, um, I think because I was able to do it in my in my way and it was kind of refreshing to people why I got such a, a big audience. And the, the story was extremely crazy. I have to give a credit to that. <laughs> the story is the, when you look at all the tentacles of Murdaugh, the story is unfathomable. And there aren't a ton of journalists that are under the umbrella of kind of legacy media that are able to do what you've done. Um, I followed John Kerry really closely in his um, breaking of the Elizabeth Holmes kind of story wide open. And then him breaking away from his outlet and doing his own podcast and his book and really saying this is one story that is so big. I need a podcast to explain everything that has happened here because it branches off into these tangents that you also have to follow. There's, It's like, but there's also this case over here and there's also this investigation here and there's also whistleblowers here. And it sometimes really takes that. And I think podcasting lends itself really naturally to that longer form, almost serialized storytelling because with the legal case, you're not going to get an answer beginning to end unless you're covering it after the fact and then rehashing it. When you're covering it as it's unfolding, it, it's un, it's unexpected. Had you covered um, trial coverage like the Murdoch case before and watched trials like that before? Or was this a whole new experience for you? Let me think. When I was a reporter in Missouri, I covered a rape case, but it was within the military, a rape trial, but it was within the military court. What is that? Court martial? Um, oh, a much different system. Yeah. And that, so that was a little different, but, um, and I've covered like bond hearings and things like that. And I covered another, a, a couple other like little trials here and there. Um, and I've been to the courthouse several times uh, just for littler things, but not anything like this. A seven-week trial or a six-plus-week trial is a different kind of marathon when you're covering it's it. It's absurd. Yeah. And I, I'm also glad that I thought it was going to be for three weeks because I went into it being like, <laughs> all right. Me too. <laughs> I was a three-week trial because Debbie Heard was seven weeks. And after that, and it feels like you're in trial for it. And most of my trials were three weeks is reasonable, two weeks, somewhere two days, um, so I was like, okay, three weeks, like I've got it. And I actually had Dave Matthews band tickets in South Carolina in June. So I was like, this trial needs to be done so I can go to con so I can start my concert season. So it was so funny as it was like wrapping up. I was like, I need this trial to be done, but it, it was so long. Um, and it feels quite like a marathon in six weeks in that six weeks. What kind of surprised you about that experience of, of a trial that long? Oh my gosh, everything. Um, <laughs> and 
I like going back to this idea of being able to do my own thing and being able to make my own decisions for coverage. That was so essential in this trial because I mean, I didn't, I was so defeated and exhausted by the last two years by the time the trial happened. I didn't want to do it at all. But the way that I could possibly do it and mentally be able to give my all um, to our premium members and to our audience and be able to fully analyze, you need your whole brain to analyze the Murdoch story and all the tentacles and And I also love just being able to constantly provide context to people that they wouldn't understand both on Twitter and within our premium channel. I couldn't do that if I was in the courtroom. And a lot of people didn't get that and thought of me as like less of a journalist because I wasn't in the courtroom physically. And again, I think that that's kind of a, an old school idea of covering trial that you got to be the reporter in the note with the notebook but like we had we had sources in there it's screaming <laughs> right and we had sources in there every day who were looking at the jury and we were able to know what was good that, that was the only thing that you could not get <laughs> streaming and you could also get a better angle on a lot of people versus if you're in the back of the courtroom you can see the attorney's faces. You can see the defendant's face. You can see how they're responding to things. You can see the witnesses more clearly there. You, I think you have a much better view from streaming than you do from in court. Of course, you don't hear like scuttlebutt in the hallways if you're, if you're not there, but if you have someone there sharing those stories with you, then you have kind of a 360 view. It's funny that it's like, no, you have to sit in the hard chairs or the hard pews in the courtroom to be a real journalist. You're like, no. And without no. and without technology, which is crazy. Like it the rule was journalists could come but they can only take notes on pen and paper and my handwriting is atrocious. <laughs> I am I love technology. I use this program called Otter that takes <laughs> notes uh, automatically um from audio and I am so used to this world where I'm constant and I like to look things up and make sure as I'm looking for context make sure that I'm right about did this happen then blah 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 um and I am also just a hype kind of a hyperactive person and just the idea of being in a courtroom in like you said a pew and and also in a room of a lot of people who I really don't like and a lot of people who really don't like me and kind of a target on my back in a lot of ways, um, I wouldn't be able to concentrate. I wouldn't be able to analyze and do the things that I was doing and really be able to have a have two great podcasts every week as we were doing that. And, and I would have been – I mean, I was so tired for weeks after that <laughs> – for weeks after – the trial and it still feels like this traumatic exhausting portion of my life that I would never want to go back to um I can't imagine just the and a lot of journalists did get up and go sit in that pew every day and then have to type up your notes and make a story they just feel like that way of reporting is old and outdated and like you said when they now that you can stream trials um, and see a majority of angles, there's just a lot more that you can do. 
well, yeah, if you've got to wait till somebody walks out of the courtroom at lunch or at a break, the online audience already knows that it happened. They're like, I saw that 30 minutes ago. Like, what are you telling me that's new? Because you're not telling me anything that's new because I watched that happen streaming. So it's already um, delayed coverage. I can't imagine what those days are like. I would never want to do it to be sitting in court all day. We've talked a little bit about um, ADHD. So for me to try to sit in court all day, distill all the information without getting sleepy because I can't uh, move and get up and fidget and talk. And then to try to distill that in five minute sound bites of an entire court day would really just be torturous. I, the only cases I go to if I have to are stuff that cannot be streamed. Um, and even then I try to keep it to one or two day hearings. Cause I don't want to sit through six weeks of trial in a courtroom. Right. It's awful. Right. <laughs> like the Russell Lafitte case, which I mean, the federal system has got to change. <laughs> um, the federal system is so different um, with trial coverage. They There absolutely yeah. is no cameras. There absolutely is no streaming. Um, they are super serious about what you can bring into the, what you can bring into the courthouse and what you can't. And it's just a very formal, rigid, outdated process. Um, but for that case, I was there almost every day, but then at the end, I was like, I'm so tired of hearing from Russell's cousins. <laughs> I can't take this anymore. I'm going out. And I'm, but again, I had sources who were in the courtroom who were right. able to tell me the, the verdict as it was happening. And that was just at the very end. But you have to just constantly, again, realize that everybody's different. I have ADHD. I am not a, a great note taker. My skill sets are in analyzing in a, other places. But just because one person does one thing doesn't mean that they're a better or worse journalist. And and also, I have I had plenty of sources with in the area. I feel like a lot of national media wanted to like get the scuttlebutt, like you said, from the lawyers and be able to get that Eric Bland interview or whatever. I'm like, I have all these. I've, I've been there, done that. <laughs> Well, just text them later. It's right, fine. exactly. It's, it doesn't benefit you to be there in person, but it's funny because so many of the content creators I know who have had um, particularly more traditional careers and then branched off into an offshoot of that traditional career, which is what you know, going independent. I feel like it's it's taking a very traditional career and being like, I'm going to do the thing I do, but different. There's there's a high correlation between those of us with ADHD and other neurospiciness. And it's like, look, I'm just going to build the world to the way it works for me and build my work in a way that it works for me. And it's so funny to watch sometimes the pushback within still the traditional culture, because within law, um, I absolutely get that too. People are like, wait a second, the one that talks on YouTube? And it's like, oh, yeah, you don't get it. It's fine. Yes, I'm the one that talks on YouTube. It's fine. Um, but it's really funny to see like the the people who are holding on to the way that it's always been and those who are seeing that that way is dying and it's it's shifting and changing. Law needs it. Journalism needs it. I was stunned when uh, National Geographic is like, we're closing down our print version. I was like, what is more iconic truly than the print version of Nat Geo? Like what are, what? And if that's not a signal to the rest of kind of, legacy media that if you don't shift, it's going to shift anyway. Um, I don't know what it is because 
this like, we have to do it this way. You don't actually have to do it that way. There's lots of ways to do it. And they're, they're equal and different. And so people can, if people just want to read an article on their lunch break, that's a distillation of what happened in the morning, they're going to do that. If people want to watch every single moment of this trial and every, you know, time Alec Murdoch dabbed at a dry face, then they can do that too. So it really allows the audience to pick what works for them as well. Right. And make people feel less alone. Like I said, um, I, I can sense that you probably felt a little, uh, just different from most lawyers. Just, outside yeah, outside of the box, whatever. <laughs> but a lot of times I felt like there was something wrong with me because I didn't understand the way that everybody else was doing things and I wanted to do things different. And it's really empowering and reassuring when you see this giant audience behind um, you doing the things different in your way and just saying, like, hey, Work doesn't have to be like this rigid nine to five. We don't have to all dress up in suits and pretend like we're doing real work. Like we can be silly and fun and be ourselves. And you don't, I, I call it a white man world. You don't have to like fall into this white man world that is not for everyone. Yeah. The the neurotypicals um, don't always understand that there's a lot of different ways to do things. And it's something that I tried to fit myself within the box of the DAs. I'm like, how are the other lawyers doing this? And I'm like, I can't do this job the way y'all are doing this job. I'm inspired by how y'all are doing this job, but I have to do it my own way. And people are like, what is with the fact that you have like 17 markers on your desk? I'm like, I needed a chart and I needed it to be colorful. Leave me be with my whiteboard, <laughs> my tabs, and my, <laughs> and my colored highlighters. Like, leave me alone. I have a system. And, and I needed to do it my way because that's, again, my brain works well with distilling information and synthesizing it. It's why I liked white collar crimes so much because there's just more volume, but it also kept my brain engaged. Like it, a lot of, um, a lot of criminality and especially felony crimes are very simple. It's like this person sold drugs to that person. Okay. Well, there's, okay. This person, you know, shot that person. Okay. But when you get to more complex crimes and financial crimes, you're really digging through and trying to find connections and patterns. And it's just truly much more stimulating for the neurospicy brain that wants something going on all the time. So I'm not surprised that the Murdoch case also kept you super engaged because every couple of days it was something new. And that's, when I was, when I was like cover, cause when I cover things, I cover multiple cases at once. So when I would like swoop back around to be like, we need to pick up what's going on in murder. I'm like, holy shit. Why are there so many filings in so many different cases? And it hasn't stopped. It's, it's got to feel it's like the trial ended, but this case is so far from done and it's going to be much longer, but it's got to feel like a little bit of a breath of fresh air to weave yourself out and around it and get to work in the way you want to work. Cause now if you want to cover something breaking on murder, you can, but if you don't want to, you don't have to, you can pause it for a few days or do you feel that you can, or is your audience just like, no, no, there's shirtless pictures we need to discuss. <laughs> oh my gosh. So much there. Um, well, the amount of, the amount of, the amount of, time, <laughs> the amount of, yeah, I the am amount of email. so tired of it. I feel like there needs to be a lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am emotionally distressed. I am, yeah, I I will get in on that. Um, <laughs> Things you never need to see on the internet. Oh, God. I yeah, never. Not, I I'm scarred forever. 
Um, what is yeah. But a couple things in that. Um, and circling back, I think that like ADHD in a lot of ways is a superpower, especially for content creators. Um, and I always tell people like I get like you too. I can tell. I get bored very easily. <laughs> I like to be all over the place. I right. like really exciting. When I'm reading a story, a lot of times I just stop reading because I just get bored and blah, blah, blah. You lost me. You can hear your brain scream like boring. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Done. And I think that that was a thing that made us was a superpower for me doing a podcast because I have this uh, don't be boring in my head. Like if I'm a listener, don't, you have to make sure that they're not going to turn it off and be so bored. Um, and in journalism, I, McClatchy had like all these weird stats on each reporter and they had a stat mm -hmm. on how far people read down your story, like what percentage of the story, um, people by, by them scrolling. That's and I had like a, I had a really, really good number and I wasn't surprised by then. So did Liz. We had like some of the best in the company. Right. Because. We don't want to bore ourselves. Right. And <laughs> and we both, yeah, we, we have that voice in our head saying I'm bored. And if I'm going to write something that's boring, um, I try not to, and I try to make it different. I'm so stuck now on the fact that there's like company-wide statistics on this. Cause like my YouTube statistics, like I know and my team knows, but nobody else knows. I mean, but it it reminds me of the DA's office where we all knew each other's trial statistics. Well, there's over a thousand attorneys, so you don't know everyone's trial statistics, but your trial statistics are, are something where you're like, oh, so-and-so's done this many trials. And within courthouses, you know how many trials people are doing and and trying to distill work to numbers is also something I wasn't super interested in. It's like, but my, the, some of the cases I'm doing are not a two-day trial. These are cases that are going to take four months to put together because it's boxes and boxes of records. But it's interesting to know that even in journalism, there's these little like quirks of, oh no, there's statistics on, on every single uh, we thing. Had, so we had statistics on, and as I was getting ready to leave McClatchy, because <laughs> um, I was just done, we had like a they were trying to get reporters to essentially sell newspaper subscriptions and have contests between who had who could convert the most newspaper subscriptions. <laughs> and they wanted us for our birthdays to like orphan Annie, please for my birthday, please uh, buy a subscription to the packet. They <laughs> and then we realized that the. CEO was making millions of dollars and um, I think he had like a 30000 a month stipend for his housing, which was a lot of reporters' salaries in McClatchy. And it was just all very um, kind of coming down on me in 2019 that this is getting really bad. And like you said, there's good and bad things when you look at numbers, um, but it, it, I mean, we had numbers on how many page views, how many, how many of our stories converted people to uh, spend money or buy an ad or blah, blah, blah. Oh, to subscribe or just whatever. Everything. And um, it was just almost too much. And it just makes you kind of over analytical on like, it is somebody, 
are enough people going to be interested in this story and you take a lot less risk, I feel like. And that was something with the Murdoch story that was kind of annoying to me that um, every media company in the world was descending on it as, after it got really popular. And it's because there is zero risk involved <laughs> because like they could just write it up and swoop in and say, oh, this is a really easy, simple story. And oh, look at all my page views. And it's like, yeah, it's not simple. And maybe you should take a risk on it. Maybe you shouldn't be the seventh uh, or the, there was probably, there was probably more than a hundred reporters at um, covering the trial. Maybe you shouldn't be the hundredth reporter uh, covering the Murdoch case. Maybe you should go down the street and find another <laughs> murder and something else to investigate. But because these companies because it, reporters just feel so much pressure of like, if you're not going to get the numbers, then your job's at risk. And it's. Which makes it really hard to break anything new and really speaks to the reason that you don't see different stories. You see one story pick up and then everyone jumps on it. And then that story picks up and then it feeds on itself. Cause then people are like, Oh, everybody's covering this. This must be important. It signals to an audience. Like this is important when you go into your, your news aggregator and every single story is regarding the same topic. There's no new information to be had. It's just new headlines to get you to read the same information again. And um, the circular nature of that is something I find very frustrating because it's like, no, I don't want to talk about the same thing all the time. I want to go talk about this. Um, right now I'm covering a defamation case that is between a professor at the University of Idaho and a TikToker. I am gripped by this case in a way that I haven't been gripped by anything in a minute because I am just like appalled and horrified and fascinated and and it's wild to watch it unfold. No one is covering it. And I'm like, I don't care. I have an audience that is equally gripped. We're all just like, what is happening in this defamation case? And we can because we're independent. I'm sure somebody will pick it up when it resolves again. They picked it up right at the beginning, but I don't have to worry about clicks through on a headline or what my like CTR is in the same way because my audience is like, girl, you want to talk about it? We're with you. Right. And I get to pick. So right. And, it's and that's something that's awesome to have an audience behind you and that is like, well, if Emily's talking about it today, then I feel it's got to be important enough. So let's listen in, you know? Or at least it's going to be interesting. <laughs> it might not be important, but at least it'll be fascinating. Right. And it's, media could do that too if they invested in their local reporters in a way that the audience was like, oh, if you're talking about this, I must need to know. Right. You can do the same thing, but it sounds like they are not willing to invest in building that. It The way you're talking about media reminds me a lot of what's going on in music because I covered a lot of what's going on with streaming contracts and stuff like that in music where the music industry used to help develop a band that's going to grow a following and developed them over multiple albums. And now it's like, we'll develop you for one song. If it doesn't hit on TikTok, you're done. And you can't really develop that kind of organic following with developing over one song. You need to let artists grow. And it's the same with creatives in the journalism space. People want to think and grow and, and build people who want to follow them locally because local reporting is so much better than national reporting most of the time. And it sounds like a lot of that is by design and constraint from the top, not from the individual journalists. It is. And um, you brought up a good point with like on the murder, on, on all these big cases, you can find a hundred different versions of the exact same thing. 
And I think that that's honestly a tragedy that is killing journalism right now is the amount of wasted time and energy and reporters that could be doing their own individual stories instead. And one of my jobs at McClatchy, I was a news aggregator and they wanted me to do three to five stories a day on like the hottest thing that would basically get clicks for the company. And so what's trending on Twitter, can you write about it? So it will get clicks because it's trending. on Yes, Twitter. basically. Wow. Or Reddit, or I had to learn about Reddit. Or, trending and, yeah, trend, or it could, they wanted us to predict the trend. <laughs> Anyways, it was very stupid, but I learned a lot as far as how to get, uh, like what people are interested in, how to pe- get people interested in a story. Um, and, but at the same time, it just felt really gross. Like it just felt like why are we all wasting our time just rewriting the exact same thing when we could be our skill sets are to find other stories in our local areas and do something about that and writing our own story? Um, and I got a lot of crap at the beginning for saying that, like, I was possessive over the Murdoch story, but it was just, it was a very frustrating thing for me to experience um, after doing two years of not just reporting in my day job, going home, um, listening to listening to all the Stephen Smith case files and um, interviews all in my free time. I mean, just being total, meeting with sources in my free time, like just being consumed by this thing and kind of laying out to everybody, hey, this is the story. And then people just swooping in and being like, oh, got it. And not really understanding the work that went into that. Um, and I think that that's just a huge problem. We Journalists need to not all just be repeating the same story over and over again. Um, one of my favorite journalists, Julie K. Brown, who exposed um, Epstein, for the Miami Herald, she wrote in her book, um, if there's a pack of reporters somewhere, go somewhere else. And that is one of the truest things that I could ever tell a young journalist to do. Like the story will not be when you're in a press conference and everybody else is, and and there's a hundred other media around. The story is when you dig into the documents for days or you find a source down the road who knows a lot more. And I just think that, again, that's another just, problem that nobody can get behind media and they're not going to make money if they're just all printing the same thing. And it just is also blah. But the thing is that doing that takes courage and integrity and ethics because you have to go into pulling on those threads, not knowing where it's going to go and being willing to follow it. And even if it's not going to necessarily bring the clicks and views. And that might come years later. When you started pulling the thread on Murdaugh, it didn't hit immediately. It sounds like the boat case grew locally, but then you saw the podcast grow organically when the story started picking up. And I'm sure boom during the trial. And then when you launched Cup of Justice, it launched number one everywhere on Apple Podcasts because of the legwork that you said, I'm putting my time, my energy, my attention, my emotion, I'm putting the, you know, lost sleep into this story. And years later, 
we might end up here. But you can't predict that always at the beginning. You can just follow your own curiosity and hope that others will follow with you. And really, I think what you found and what I found too is that if you explain it to people, there are other people who are curious like you. And that's what the media companies, I think, are are missing is that they, I think, at a corporate level, not at an individual journalist level, at a corporate level, I think they don't trust the public to be curious and they don't trust the public to ask questions. And they just want to say, okay, well, here's another story with the same five facts. You're not even going to notice because you're on to the next thing. Not everyone has that short of an attention span. Some people actually want to know what's happening. And if you trust that, I think you'll find an audience. And I think you have for sure found that. Yeah. And again, I'm just very, um, it, thank God it worked out. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but there were times between, especially between the murders and um, when a lot of people realized what was going on in September 2021, um, when the case just blew up that, I mean, my podcast was doing a lot better than a lot of people, but it still wasn't doing great. And it still wasn't really worth the time and energy and shit that I was getting from other people. <laughs> and I just, I'm, I'm very glad that Alex was such an idiot. <laughs> he uh, tried to do that wacky suicide for hire situation that just blew the story up and got just people concerned about this and got people who really wanted to dig deep and and again, like people, it is fine to have multiple podcasts about the same thing because people want different ways, but nobody should, I, I don't think, unless somebody's hurting somebody or just spreading misinformation, I don't think that you should attack the other person for doing, um, for doing it not the way that you want to, because what, what we have found is that a lot of, there's just a lot of different people with a lot of different needs. And that's the beauty of the internet. Yeah. We can all do things differently. And we've chosen to do things differently during that time. Um, when the case got, you know, it gets long, right in the middle bit before the roadside incident, what kept you going through that? Was it your, your sources? Was it looking for answers on, on the murders? What kept you moving through that the part where it's like, do we just shut it down today? Are we just done with this? Because at some point, it I've had those moments. I know you've had those moments of like, I could just walk away, though. I could just not do this. Right. <laughs> and you think like, what if I was just a normal person? <laughs> what if I just quit it all and became a waitress or whatever? And I, I think everybody facing a lot of stress and just harassment, not even, it's not even criticism. It's just nastiness online. It just gets really hard and it makes you kind of want to disappear in different times. And just like the world just wants to be just me to be just a normal person who blends in with everybody else. Maybe that's just what I should do. But I would say my sources and a lot of victims involved who were talking to me completely off the record at the time, um, showing support for the podcast and saying, Hey, all of this needs to be said. Thank you for saying it. And that's really what made me continue. And, and there was also just a few, um, 
big supporters that we had early on, including um, financial supporters. Like I'll never forget the Bannon Law Group. <laughs> they they were a local uh, they were a local law group, and I didn't know them. They emailed me one of the first days that we put the podcast out and said hey, we really support what you're doing and we want to sponsor. And I was like, oh my God, we got a sponsor. I didn't even think of that. David, how much do we charge? <laughs> and um, that was another thing that just really, oh my gosh, people people locally are behind this. And also, man, uh, people in Hilton Head were very incredibly supportive that entire period of time. I would go to walk my dog and people would honk their horn at, strangers would honk their horn at me and say, can't wait for the next podcast. And it was crazy. And we're walking, walking Luna, people recognize Luna before they recognize me often. <laughs> um, people, people saying, oh my gosh, Luna and you, thank you for what you're doing. I've lived in the area for a long time and I'm just sick of this system. I appreciate it. Things like that is what kept me going. But also I, I want to say at the time of the shooting, we were trying to like break for two weeks because I was like, I can't do this every week. I'm really... I'm too tired. I'm too worn out. I just can't keep going. And Murdoch yeah. had other plans for you. <laughs> I was not. It's like, I'm about to take a break. He's like, I'm about to make Blow sure it all you up. can't take a break. From the <laughs> year and a half. Good luck with that. Um, yeah. I think what's so important about what you said is that though we can talk about the negativity and nastiness on the internet and it can be overwhelming, it really takes a small percentage of this helped me this mattered to me. This is incredible. I think what you're doing is great to push through and keep going. And that can't be um, overstated how, how much it matters. Cause there's times I'll see comments and I can't always respond to all of them or DMS where people are like, I don't know if you'll ever see this, but this episode helped change my mind about this thing. Or, you know, you talking about being ADHD helped me go and get diagnosed and it's changed everything for me and for my family. And that is really what keeps it going. Um, I'm not really fueled by, by negativities. I don't, I don't try to engage with that at all. It really is the people who are like, this matters to me because I think of the things that matter to me. And if they just disappeared and stopped doing it, how gutted I would be. Um, when I watched, it was Miss Americana with Taylor Swift and she was talking about the hate that she received and saying, I felt like everybody just wanted me to go away. So I went away. And I'm like, but also how hard was that for all the people who were counting on you to be there? So I get both sides of it. I get the feeling of like, I just, fine, I'll just go away then. But also all the people that are there, like, no, this is now a part of, of my life too. And so you can't just really pack up and go away because right. we've created something yeah. bigger. And I think it's important to really be a fan of someone. And I didn't really realize that before. Like if I listen to a podcast that changes my way of thinking or my life, just to reach out to the creator or comment on their Instagram, follow that, just do something to show that what, that their work is meaningful. And it sometimes I'm sure feels like it's completely, um, not being heard, but yeah, a lot of those comments just change your day around when you really want to quit and you really want to give up. And then somebody just sends you a long email about how important your work is and how they look forward to the day your podcast comes out and how they 
were inspired to stand up for themselves at work or just different things. Those are the messages that just, they matter so much. And I wish I knew that earlier in life because I wish I, I would have like reached out to a lot more people. And I just always thought like, oh, I'm just a nobody. Like, why would I say that they're great? <laughs> Right. And you think they know they're great, right? Exactly. You're like, I think you're great. Obviously, they know they're great. No, yeah. we all need validation. We do, especially <laughs> as women. And um, yeah, if you are in the limelight in any way, shape, or form, you're definitely that person is definitely getting criticism from in some way. And there just has to be positivity to balance that out. Otherwise, it just becomes too hard and too impossible. I'm not going to drag you deep into a light in the dark um, Star Wars analogy because that would be way, way too nerdy. Do you have something that you are a super fan of? Do you have a super fandom that that you are willing and open to sharing on the internet? Because I talk about my fandoms quite a lot. Uh, yeah, Taylor Swift. Um, <laughs> that's, that's not surprising to anybody. <laughs> um, I currently, I just went to her concert for the second time and currently have this bracelet on that one of my it. fans made me and I met her at the concert and it says That's karma incredible. and then uh TS for true sunlight and Taylor Swift. I love it so I, much. That's it, it's incredible. I, and it it matters. It does. And I, I like her for a lot of reasons. Um not I love her music, but I love her ability to stand up for herself as a woman. There's just a lot of I feel like um She's taken a lot of shit from a lot of people and been able to rise above that and had a, just massive hate against her for no reason at all. Um, what you mean hating someone because they have a face is for no reason at all? Like it, it feels like that's where some of the hate was with Taylor Swift. It's like she has a face and hair and I hate her. It's like, wow, that's odd. Yeah. Okay. And, and then people getting upset about her fandoms like people make fun of me because I like <laughs> people made fun of me for going to her concert for the second time but it's like it gives me joy and I love it Wait, and people make fun of you for going to concerts too much oh the things they must say about me I'm getting ready to go to like my seventh Dave Matthews show this summer my like 50 something I think it's like my 56th or 57th show total like I go so hard that I don't even I don't even notice that people are like it's weird that you're still doing that I'm like I've been going to these concerts since 1996 you can't stop me now it's like this is this is a part of not just my personality but my summer plans as well it is like a core part of my my entire summer but you I love it I I was not really in the because I'm old but the Taylor Swift genre it was when she stood up to streaming rights on iTunes that I was like, wait, what are you doing over there? Like put her foot down and was like, no, until you change this for all artists, I'm not doing it. And I've seen her do stuff like that again and again, where it benefits those downstream more than it would benefit her necessarily. And it's been really interesting to watch her stand up for the next generation of creators. And I hope um, to do that for the next generation of content creators that as we stand up and you've shown such a light on, I am standing up to shutting down a Reddit. I am standing up to a defamation lawsuit to make it easier for the next generation and even this generation of creators to say, this is kind of the playbook and we're still figuring out in this new world, but 
you can put your foot down and stand up for yourself and it will go your way. And that's a really incredible thing. Right. And the other thing that she did a few years ago, um, she, a, um, I think it was a DJ, grabbed her ass during yep. a photo. Um, and every woman has had that scenario. Um, and she was Taylor Swift at the time. She was on top of the world. And that guy felt like he had the right to touch her in that way. Yeah, the audacity, right? And... <laughs> And she sued him for $1 just for the point of it. And I thought that, and again, that's was something that was really hard for her to do. And it wasn't about her, but it was about the message that it sent. You know, it's about making it better for other people. And it was about, um, I know that, uh, I know that a lot of sexual assault is much worse than this, but this is about putting my foot down as a powerful woman and getting my power back because the way that he made me feel that day was not okay. It would have been much easier for her to have told the radio station, have him fired and then walk away from right. it. It would have brought her much less scrutiny. Right. Because of course people said the, the typical things, she's being dramatic. She's being, uh, she just wants attention. She just wants blah, blah. This is another publicity Nobody stunt. Wants that kind of attention. And right. It wasn't, and it was really hard for her to do that, but that's why I'm such a big fan of her. It's like so beyond. And just uh, as a creator, I love just seeing her do things that nobody's done before. I mean, her, the Eras Tour, at a lot of these stadiums, she's the first artist ever to sell out three nights in a row, um, which is crazy when you think, because most artists are constantly, she's always the first female artist to do things. No, she's the first of all time to do a lot of things. And it's just carving. And also at her concerts, you see all these like 12-year-old girls and what that does for the world to see. And also she's a single 33-year-old woman. When I was growing up, a single 33-year-old woman would have been, oh, you're a, that's a little sad. And like that would have been thought of as very old. Uh, she calls herself- And she's allowed to have cats. <laughs> I love it yeah. so much. She's allowed to be single and in her 30s and have cats. Right. And she's, cool. and she's a superhero to- teenagers, children, everybody. And that's an amazing thing because I feel I grew up in a world of fewer past 20 and a woman, you were kind of over the hill in the whole pop star world. And yeah, I mean, she's just doing things that nobody's done before. And I love that. And whenever other creators are doing that, I just like to be behind them and support them because um, we're all on different levels here, but a lot of us are trying to do the same things and a lot of us have the same goals. I think so too. I have taken up so much of your time, Mandy. It was so great getting to share not just more of your stories, but the behind the scenes on what's going on inside um, journalism and legacy media really, a, a, it's made me a little bit more compassionate for the individual journalists and what they are, the the kind of corporate machine that they are trying to fight. Um, but I also hope it continues to inspire people to find more independent voices. And as we see more and more streamers, I think we're going to see more journalists who have built their own um, their own following and their own voice and see them be much more desirable and see, you know, legacy media coming around going, wait, how can we do what you're doing? And um, I think there may be a little too late for that. <laughs> in a lot of in a lot of cases, but we'll see. So thank you for being so open with us. Tell 
all of my audience where to find you just in case they don't know where to go follow you all over the place. I'm sure they do, but just in case. Uh, lunasharkmedia.com, first of all, um, and check us out on True Sunlight Podcast and Cup of Justice Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mandy Matney. And yeah. All over the all, place. I'm everywhere. And YouTube. YouTube. We do have YouTube. Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which platform does Emily love most? YouTube, Mandy. Tell them about YouTube. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Just find us on you. Find us on YouTube at Luna Shark Media. We have video episodes there and discover the podcast there. Thanks guys. And if you want to see the episode that Mandy and I did for her podcast, you can go over and check it out on their podcast and on their YouTube channel. And that is where you can find it. So with that, Mandy, thank you again for the time. Lawnards go show Mandy love all over her socials because you know, we are creators and we take the positive affirmation very seriously. <laughs> yeah. I hope that's the takeaway. Just positive. Don't tell me that uh, you hated my voice. <laughs> <laughs> I get it too. I get it too. I get it all. The and time. thank you, Emily. <laughs> this has been wonderful. And again, you were an early supporter early on sending lots of people to me. So I really appreciate that. And I, uh, I really love just being able to, it's amazing. I, kind of distance myself with a lot of people because I'm an introvert and just kind of like to, but I get so much energy out of having conversations like this and being able to relate to someone and someone who I really respect. So I really, really appreciate it. And you've been just awesome. Thank you, Lonard. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I don't do a ton of interviews on this show, but I would love to know who you would like me to have a conversation with next down in the comments below or on social media. I hope that this brought a little more light to not just what's going on in media, but also the thing that I'm most fascinated by, which is what it's like to try to follow a story like this and really work that story before it becomes national headlines. And, you know, just some good old giggling about, about Taylor Swift and being a fangirl. It was fantastic. So thank you again to Mandy Matney. I'm going to link all of her stuff down below so you can find her podcast, True Sunlight and Cup of Justice. And you can also find all of her socials down below. Thank you again for a great conversation. And now say it with me. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your family be well. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May you have tickets to make your heart sing this summer concert season, and may the odds be ever in your favor. I will talk to you in the next one. You can find more Lawnard goodness in our private Lawnard community over at lawnardsunite.com. And if you want to stay up to date with everything I'm covering, you can follow me on social media at the Emily D. Baker. I stream on YouTube on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I recap those streams for those of you a little pressed for time over on the Quick Bits podcast and Quick Bits YouTube channel. Thanks for being a Lawnard.